Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host, and we are back with our newest Febrile series entitled High School, spelled H-A-I, which are a bundle of episodes about healthcare-associated infections. So please check out episode 60 for the first one on CLABSI if you haven't already. In episode 60, 61, and 62, we are joined by Drs. Jeremy Steinbrook and Nick Gilpin. Both join us from Beaumont Royal Oak in Michigan, where Jeremy is an ID fellow and Nick is an ID faculty physician and medical director of infection prevention and epidemiology. All right, everyone, welcome back to round two. And today we're going to talk about a slightly different call that we frequently get as fellows. So I'll hand it over to Jeremy. Hey, thank you again for having us. So the console question Today will be a patient with a Foley has a fever, Uh, team has a concern for UTI, Um, they want assistance with treatment. So we have a patient, 63-year-old male, was admitted for acute exacerbation for his heart failure. Uh, They decided to place a Foley cath for measuring the I's and O's. On the consult day, the patient had a fever of 38.3. Their question kind of is, what's the first workup, a way to deal with this patient with a fever and a Foley? Okay. This is good. This is um, important stuff, right? Because again, here we go, you know, again, with the blocking and tackling of infectious disease and, and, uh, and, and hospital medicine, as tempting as it is to blame that fever on a urinary tract infection because the patient has a Foley in, I would exercise some caution before we just go barging in and culturing that urine. <clears throat> so first things first, the CDC website has a very nice overview of healthcare associated infections. And it talks about the incidence of bacteria in patients with indwelling catheters, right? And we say it's about three to 7% per day. So if you fast forward in this patient, now you're on day four, there is a significant likelihood that this person's going to have a positive urine culture. And that does not necessarily mean that his urine is infected, right? More than likely, Uh, both the urine and the catheter are colonized. So this is probably catheter-associated asymptomatic bacteria. Urine culture stewardship, right? This is the concept we're talking about here, is extremely important in these circumstances. Inappropriate cultures lead to inappropriate antibiotics, right? And we know that there's consequences to giving patients inappropriate antibiotics. So we need to have a high clinical index of suspicion uh, before we go culturing the urine in a patient with a chronic indwelling catheter, because the likelihood is that that culture is going to be positive. So I like to teach students and residents um, to avoid the compulsion to pan culture the patient, however satisfying that may be. And I know it's very satisfying. You feel like you did something. Instead, I like to treat caudies uh, as a diagnosis of exclusion for most patients. In other words, I don't want you to think about the urine first. I want you to think about the urine last. Once you've sort of systematically ruled out um, other sources, or if you have high clinical index of suspicion, such as, you know, if the patient recently had a urological surgery or had some other high-risk clinical situation that makes me think about the urine as a probable source, And remember to always get a urinalysis either by itself or in conjunction with a culture if a culture is indicated. Can I just say I love your quote, inappropriate cultures lead to inappropriate antibiotics. And I feel like I need to start incorporating that. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, I can speak from residency. I feel like every time I was in ICU, fever, you have to culture the Foley. But then it'll come back positive and we'll be like, what do we do with this? Yep. <laughs> uh, so the team uh, got the culture before you got to see the patient. Uh, the urinalysis showed greater than 10 WBCs, nitrates, positive RBCs, positive bac- bacteria, and positive hyphae. I know you mentioned that this patient most likely has just bacteria, but not an infection. Does it make a difference when you see like bacteria, hyphae on the urinalysis? Is that part of the treatment or thinking of this as a cotty? So not, not really. And I would say that this is a pretty typical result of what you might expect to find in a situation like this. And none of those things that you mentioned, WBCs, nitrates, bacteria, yeast, none of those things are pathognomonic for infection, right? And if the patient's sole complaint is fever, I would suggest that a UTI is probably unlikely, and I would encourage you to look elsewhere for the source. Um, And if there's clinical signs or symptoms of a urinary tract infection, like flank pain or suprapubic pain or tenderness, or if the catheter is not functioning properly for some reason, like it's obstructed or kinked, then a urinary tract infection could be to blame. So quick diversion, short story here. I want to tell you about an interaction that I had with a a physician when I was a young attending. Uh, There's a physician by the name of Dr. Mohamed Fakih, who is kind of a big name in infection prevention. He's He's an ID doc, and he's also the chief quality officer for Ascension Health, for the nationwide Ascension. And he's done a lot of work in the CAUTI realm. Um, over the years. And he taught me this principle of how a functioning indwelling catheter, right, is unlikely to lead to a urinary tract infection in most patients as long as it's working properly. And the principle here is that the catheter is constantly draining the bladder as it's filling up, right? Which means that the bacteria and the yeast and everything can colonize the catheter itself, but they don't really have time to set up shop in the bladder and therefore cause infection. Now, the exception to this rule is that if the catheter is not functioning properly, if it's kinked or if it's obstructed, and now all of a sudden you've got urine pooling and stagnating inside of the bladder, then we have a colonized urine that's sitting inside of a bladder, and that's absolutely a situation that can lead to infection. Likewise, if we leave that catheter in for too long, we impair the bladder's ability to empty on its own, to functionally contract, right? And thus the patient may have some difficulty voiding. So the other situation where you might run into a true catheter-associated UTI is when you've put in a catheter, you've left it in for too long, now you're trying to take it out of the patient, the patient can't void, so all that colonized infected urine is just sitting inside of their bladder And those patients often get infections when we've colonized their urine and we've impaired their ability to void on their own. And for the team, they did have a question. I feel like this always goes, you know, the patient, you know, we're seeing WBCs, we're seeing bacteria, hyphae. Should I move their Foley, get another UA, another culture, or just remove the Foley and let it be? Well, I think in this situation, if if your patient doesn't need the Foley, then the answer is yes, right? And we should be every single day 
just like we do for hopefully for central lines and for other indwelling medical devices, we should be, you know, consistently looking at them and the appropriateness of them. I remember you mentioned that the indication here um, was so that we could monitor the patient's urine output, right, for, for I's and O's. There's plenty of non-invasive ways to accomplish that without having to put in an indwelling Foley, right? We've got non-invasive urinary catheters. If the patient is um, aware enough that he could, you know, use a urinal and we could measure the urine that way, there's there's just plenty of other ways. So, yeah, if the, if the team is asking whether they can take the Foley out, the answer is probably yes, and they probably should. So the team did decide that the patient is aware he can use a uh, bedside commode and they can collect the urine. So they remove the Foley, but sadly the patient is not able to pass a voiding trial. They do the bladder scan, see that at least a liter of urine is that. So they decide based off their guidance to place a new Foley. So they're calling now, is there anything to prevent a cauti from developing? So there's a, a lovely, um, little guideline. Again, it's in ITCHI, which is Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology. It's it's getting a little bit old. It's I think it's seven or eight years old, and it's endorsed by SHEA and IDSA. And in that document, they, they talk about, you know, these are the things that we as institutions should be doing to prevent CAUTI. And it's pretty much all the greatest hits. It's everything you would expect to find. Hand hygiene, evaluating the necessity of the catheter, right? Making sure we, we have proper indications for putting in Foley's. They even go so far as to say that those of us that are using electronic medical records, which hopefully is all of us now, should have hard stop indications for why we're putting these devices in, if, if it's feasible to do. When we put the catheter in, we should be using barrier precautions and aseptic technique during insertion. We should be maintaining a closed drainage system, Getting, if we have to obtain samples, that should also be done aseptically. We are, and then as I mentioned earlier, we're always assessing the daily need for the catheter. Can we do a trial avoid? Does this patient need the catheter? Can we take it out? And um, even pivoting to allowing a lot of those pro protocols to be nursing driven, right? Empower your nurses and your ancillary staff to be able to make those clinical decisions on their own without needing a physician's order to take out a Foley catheter. Um, because what we find is that if you leave it up to the physicians, a lot of times those catheters will just stay in for a very long time. Um, if you get the nursing staff and the other staff involved, things tend to get moved a little bit quicker. Um, there are some other situations we can discuss, like for example, catheter materials may make a small difference. There are, There's some chatter about um, using antimicrobial or antiseptic impregnated catheters. I, I would say that's something of an unresolved issue uh, the CDC mentions that if you're struggling with CAUTIs, that might be a strategy that you could consider sort of in addition to all the other stuff that you're doing. Um, and if your patient requires intermittent straight cath, which we didn't talk about in this case, um, but if you if you do have a patient that fits that, um, using hydrophilic catheters may have some benefit over conventional catheters. So again, it's all in the guidelines. Uh, I encourage you go, to go take a good look at that. It's a very well-organized, well-structured document and um it can certainly identify any deficiencies that your organization may have if you're struggling with CAUTIs. Um, I know this gets brought up sometimes. Would you ever do prophylactic antibiotics with someone that needed a Foley? You know, in this case, definitely not, 
right? That I don't think there's any clear indication here for prophylactic antibiotics. And, and what are you going to accomplish when you put someone on prophylactic antibiotics? Generally, you're not going to prevent colonization. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to create monsters, right? And so now instead of being colonized with garden variety stuff, you're going to be colonized with more resistant stuff. Uh, there are a few, I guess I'll call them very narrow circumstances where it might be warranted to use antimicrobial prophylaxis in a patient with a with an indwelling catheter. Um, but again, it's very narrow circumstances. I'm struggling even right now to think of what an example of that might be. I mean, maybe a maybe a pregnant patient who has, you know, persistent uh, bacteria and has had recurrent pyelonephritis. I mean, there's just again, I have to rack my brain to think of what those situations might be, but very limited circumstances. Going back to the case, so the team didn't use prophylactic antibiotics, uh, but they decided right before the his discharge, they started him on some tamsulosin, then tried another void, and this was successful. He's still in the hospital three days later after the removal of the Foley, has a fever, gets a urine culture, and this one is positive for E. coli. Now, does this fit the definition of CAUTI with the Foley being removed? So the, the NHSN, the National Healthcare Safety Network, their definition of a catheter-associated UTI is very blunt and it lacks any specificity for the most part. It's really intended as a surveillance definition, not a clinical definition. And the definition is you have the presence of an indwelling catheter uh, for more than two consecutive days in a hospital, plus at least one symptom, and that could just be fever, or it could be dysuria or urgency or suprapubic tenderness or whatever. And remember, many of those symptoms are nonspecific, even in your catheterized patients. A lot of them are going to complain of some discomfort just from the catheter itself, um, plus a positive urine culture, excluding yeast. So you got a catheter in for more than two days, you got a fever, you got a positive culture, you've got a cauti. Even if you, the clinician, says, no, 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 the, I know the source is somewhere else. It's the, it's the pneumonia or it's the, it's the cellulitis. It doesn't matter. You've met the definition of a cauti, and you unfortunately can't wiggle your way out of that. Now, if the catheter is removed and it remains out for a full calendar day, then the clock resets, right? So if you have to put the catheter back in the next day, you're back to day one all over again. In the case that you mentioned, though, the catheter came out initially, but it got put right back in because the patient failed avoiding trial. Presumably that was the same day. So those would be considered consecutive catheter days. Now, then going back to the case you mentioned, the fever occurred three days after you took the catheter out and the patient had a successful voiding trial. So this fever would not be attributed to the urinary catheter according to the surveillance definition. Um, it would be, had it been removed the day before the fever happened, then it would be attributable. So in this particular case, we got lucky and this, from a surveillance perspective, would not be considered a cloudy. So it seems like a lot of this is just based off the days. Yeah, it's it's got a lot to do with timing. Timing is everything. And, you, you know, your hospitals and healthcare systems have data abstractors and people that work in infection prevention that are constantly monitoring these things and making sure these things meet the definition because this all has to be public, publicly reported back to the NHSN. And if they catch you um, trying to, uh, you know, 
wiggle your way out of these things inappropriately, uh, that can have serious consequences for a hospital. And is there a difference in the rules for patients that have long-term indwelling foleys or like the suprapubic foleys when it comes to the classification? So suprapubic catheters, nephrostomy tubes, ileal conduits, these are not considered indwelling catheters according to the NHSN. So they are excluded. Just like yeast, if yeast grows from a urine culture in a patient with a chronic catheter, that is excluded. An indwelling catheter is defined as a drainage tube inserted into the bladder via the urethra and connected to a drainage bag. And that could be a leg bag or that could be a Foley bag. Um, But that's the definition of what they consider an indwelling catheter. So I guess to summarize some of the teacher points you talked, correct me if I got some of these wrong, but always look at the reason for the Foley's being placed, remove them when unnecessary. The definition for Cotty kind of like we talked in the previous with the CLABSI is more difference between clinical versus the government regulations. <laughs> Hydrophilic plastics can be used in certain cases or antimicrobials also for the tubing. And don't need to culture just for a fever, kind of look mm-hmm. at the whole clinical picture. Great. So hopefully everyone will listen to this episode and practice some urine, cul- help others practice some urine culture stewardship. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not easy, right? Cause a lot of us yeah. were taught that this is how we do it, right? We culture everything when we see the patient. So, you know, this is a little bit of a reframing um, from how we've, many of us have been taught to do business. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when you're busy and you're a fellow and you get that call, sometimes you probably are a little frustrated. But I think if you take the time to explain what you're thinking and Mm -hmm. your reasoning is that maybe uh, it'll be done a little bit better the next time. So hopefully people can can think of that too, that if you feel frustrated, just remember you might be doing yourself and your patient a favor in the future if you help reframe this for, you know, the teams that we work with. All right, so CLABSI and CAUTIs, check. Next up will be surgical site infections and ventilator-associated pneumonia. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references. I know I'm slightly behind. I am on service and will be catching up on those soon. Uh, You can still access our library of ID infographics and find a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.